Hi, this is Kirk Reed. Bear with me as we need a little compliance disclosure. In our practice, we give financial advice to our clients. We know their financial situation in detail before doing so. That's generally not the case with callers we speak with on the show. We can't give truly meaningful financial advice because we don't know the detailed financial situation of the caller. After all, we just met. Any suggestions we make to callers are generic in nature and meant to steer a caller in the right direction. Callers should check with their own financial professionals before implementing any suggestions that we may make. At times on this show, we talk about investments and investment performance. Investment returns are not guaranteed, and past performance does not guarantee future results. Good morning. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. Happy weekend, everybody. Got a great show planned for you this morning. Joined this morning by attorney Ben Cody with Styles Law right here in Marshfield. Good morning. Good morning. Haven't had you on in a little while, but you are a veteran of the show and you must have been on Mark's show several times. I have been on WATD a couple yeah. times. I didn't ask you this before the show, but do you want to take a minute to just give a little background? I'm to put you on the spot, but you're going to be on the spot for a couple hours, so you might as well get used to it, Ben. Yeah, that's great. Do you want to give so, a little background? Sure. My name is Ben Cody. And I'm an attorney with Styles Law, and I help people with estate planning. So that can mean a lot of different things to different people, depending on what their goals are and what their needs are. So I help people with wills, trusts, powers of attorney, healthcare proxies. So before estate planning, I started with Styles Law about nine years ago. Styles Law also does real estate transactions and real estate planning. So I have a background in real estate, focused primarily on estate planning at this point. I went to school at Northeastern Law. That was a good experience. Went to college at Union College in upstate New York. So I keep moving closer to the water. So at some point I'm going to get wet. Yeah. Thank you for being here. I, Ben and I have several mutual clients at this point and I get, I do get great reviews from the clients that I know that have worked with you. Hence you being on the show again. So I... We have like a plethora of estate planning, legal stuff that we can talk about today. I do want to get into wills and trusts and types of problems or concerns that trusts can address and the the importance of planning and all that stuff. We have a, a million directions we can go today and we're prepared to do that. We'll see how much time we have. But when I was preparing for the show this morning, I got, I went down this rabbit hole of psychology because I started thinking about the people that I work with and I do planning as well, obviously different type of planning financial planning, but estate planning, it's all interrelated. And I started thinking about why there are some people that procrastinate and why do they, people know that they need to do certain things, but why don't they do it? Why does it take them so long to do it? So I started going down this rabbit hole of Googling psychology and your money, psychology and your estate in estate planning. And there was actually more, a, a lot more that popped up than I thought would. Uh, of course, that's Google for you, right? So I just, and I have no credentials that would support me speaking intelligently regarding the psychology of money, other than my experience in almost 20 years now and just my observation from working with clients of all different ages and uh, stages of life and backgrounds and things like that. But I just found this interest. I found a lot of interesting things. And one of them, a study that was done a couple of, I guess about three years ago regarding the relationship between like knowledge and implementation or it, and it was why do people, why do people procrastinate regarding their money? And they know that they need to do certain things, but they're not doing them. So there was a study done a few years ago and I'll, I'm, it was, of course, there's an incredible amount of information here, but I just pulled out this little snippet and I can't take credit for this, but I found it on the National Library of Medicine under the National Center for Biotechnology Information. And it was this study called Procrastinate 
procrastination and personal finances, exploring the roles of planning and financial self-efficacy. Am I pronouncing that word right? I think so. (laughs) (laughs) So this was a few years ago, and the there looks like there's three people that were responsible for this study. None of their names that of which I can pronounce: Thor Clausen, Frodi Svard Svardal, and Piers Steele. So anyway, I'm giving credit where credit is due. But I just pulled a couple little things from this study, and this was back in 2019. I'm just going to read just a little bit, okay? So bear with me, because I thought this was part was interesting. It's about procrastinating. While lack of financial knowledge can compromise financial behavior, right? So that's maybe obvious that people might not act if they don't know how to act or, or that they need to act, okay? But while lack of financial knowledge can compromise financial behavior, a lack of rationality itself can potentially contribute as well. Many of the detrimental consequences of poor personal finances are linked to impulsivity and reduced appreciation of the long-term consequences of current choices, suggesting that at least some unhealthy financial behaviors are an example of procrastination. Procrastination, the voluntary delay of an intended course of action, despite expecting to be worse off due to the delay, is strongly associated with impulsivity and present bias preferences. One form of a present bias preference is that the individual impulsively diverts from a planned course of action, turning to something more pleasurable instead. Such diversions are themselves not delays, but they delay planned behavior indirectly. Another form of the preference is seen when averse or boring tasks are, i.e. estate planning, then. (laughs) Adverse or boring tasks are postponed because performing the same task tomorrow subjectively seems more attractive as near-term costs outweigh distant adverse consequences. Although these delays may be associated with short-term benefits, they are knowingly outweighed by the long-term costs on performance, health, well-being, et cetera, subjective as well as financial. And then I just put like a couple of the things they pointed out in the study that procrastinators, procrastinators' financial problems are not due to lack of planning. Procrastinators are just as likely to make intentions to act, but have trouble implementing. So it was saying like, it's not that they're not planning and they don't, it's not that they don't know what to do. They're just not implementing. And that's like why I started reading on this. Cause I was like, why aren't people implementing? They know they need to do this. And I find similar things in the world of financial planning as well. Planning itself can be delayed and delayed planning is more common in procrastinators. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting. And I just wanted to get your perspective, like, I have, when I, as part of my financial planning process and caring for my clients, I'm, I always have estate planning on my checklist to make sure that my clients have at least addressed estate planning in some way. And sometimes years will go by where, did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? And sometimes literally years will go by and people won't follow through. And there's only so much I can do other than politely reminding them that this is important. So I just didn't know in your experience, when are you, when are you meeting people? Are you finding often that you're meeting people and you're like, I wish I met them five or 10 years ago. Or are you finding that people are reaching out to you at an appropriate time? Or is it just all over the map? Yeah, that's a great question. So 
There definitely are some people that have waited too long, and that's especially in the context of planning for long-term care. Yeah. The example that I give tongue-in-cheek is I've had somebody call, and they were in their 90s, and they said, I haven't set up my will yet, but I think it's time. Oh. <laughs> and I responded saying, well, I think it was time about 30 years ago. <laughs> there are some people that call, and it's too early. So they may have just graduated college. They're oh, wow. new to adulting, and they say, I don't have any stuff. I don't have, any, I don't have a family that I necessarily need the assets to go to or what the default rules are. That's where it goes anyway. I'm like, all right. Who are these overachievers? And I need to meet them. Yeah, there's only a couple of them. Um, (laughs) Right out of college looking to do estate planning. Nice. Exactly. The next time that I usually see people, they're either expecting or just had their first child. Yeah. And they understand that we have to do some planning to make sure that they're taken care of. But then there's a big gap. Uh, A lot of people, I'll talk to them, they say, we have the basic will from when we just had our child, but now it's 25, 30 years later. It's probably time to edit it because all the people we've named as executors or personal representatives that have all passed or are no longer able to do it. And there's actually a deep sense of shame for a lot of people. They, oh, they're constantly yeah. apologizing to me. I'm sorry yeah. I waited so long. Yeah. And, and it's really bizarre because I'm happy you're here. Lack but, of self-confidence. I find that as well in, my, in the people that I meet. I exactly. Like they don't have enough or that they yeah aren't worthy of planning or something. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But I think generally the earlier the better. And it's primarily because we don't know what the future is going to hold. So somebody that's in their early 30s that has a young family, they might say, I don't really need it now. It's an expense that I can do without until you can't. And that's really the problem. We don't know when our expiration date is. And so generally the best time to plan is when you have assets, you have people that are relying on you. That's when we should probably talk. Yeah. My, I remember early in my career, my dad, so my mentor, founder of the business in the show, I remember a long time ago, he told me that it's okay for people to be a little bit fearful. And he was saying that in the context of financial planning and investing, where, you know, it's from a financial perspective, it's good for people to be fearful that they won't have enough money later and cause them to save or fearful they'll have to work forever because they didn't save enough. So they save more. So like a little bit of fear is okay. And I relates quite well. There's a parallel in your business as well, where to be fearful of what happens to my family after I'm gone, what happens to my spouse, what happens to my kid after I'm gone. I think it's okay to be a little bit fearful. And you and I were talking offline about how in in a different context, but too much fear is not a good thing. You know, as professionals, we want to educate and let people know the risks involved, let, you know, make people aware of certain risks and get them to be a little bit fearful, which can cause them to act in certain ways, but balance that with not imposing too much fear on someone. And because too much fear is overly stressful, but also can, uh, could cause someone to act too drastically and sacrifice their life so much that they're trying to do so, trying to plan so well for the future that they're not living in today. And we all, life can be short. So I, I think that the reason I started talking about that is you mentioned someone that just had a baby, right? A a person or a married couple that just had a baby and going right in to do some planning with you. And I think that's related to fear. What, you know, here and parents' love for child is like unmatched, right? So parents will always, it seems to me, will always want the best for their kids, no matter how old they are. And I think that fear of, will my kids be okay when I'm gone? If I'm not here to take care of my kids, will they be okay? And what can I do in that regard? I think that 
is pretty unique in terms of getting people probably in your door and in my door to, right. to plan for the future for the benefit of their kids. Other than that, what's getting people to do the right sort of planning? I can't think of really anything else that matches like love for children and wanting to plan for them in the future. And it's really interesting. I've gotten to see how that love evolves. So somebody that has a one month old, it's I'm really worried about the here and now. I'm worried about putting food on the table or milk in the bottle, whatever the case may be. Yeah. But then it transitions. And at some point, parents get really worried about, I want to make sure that my kids get along mm. so that family is important to me. I want to make sure that this money doesn't come between them. So that's mm. a big fear that people have. And sometimes there's fears about maybe some bad habits that their adult children might have. Maybe there's some fear about how are they going to retire based on their finances. Yeah. So it can take on a lot of different Absolutely. feelings. And I think you're exactly right. Too much is a bad thing yeah. because it can paralyze us. And that's what I find with a lot of my clients. The reason they haven't come in or the reason that the process stalls is they're afraid they're going to make the wrong choice. Oh, okay. And the perfection is the enemy of the good. And if you are trying to pick the perfect replacement for you, it's never going to work. We're thinking about second best. That's mm. really what we're dealing in. So generally, now when I have my clients fill out their initial intake or initially think about this, stream of consciousness. Who's the best person to make this decision? What's the best way to do this? Because usually your gut reaction, you're on to something. Okay. And then we can tailor it from there and think about it analytically. Is this really the right person? Is this the right plan? But generally, if you start moving, you're going to keep going. Yeah. And fear can really paralyze you. I think fear, I think you're exactly right. Like fear of not making the right decision, I think sometimes delays causes people to not even take that first step in terms of having a consultation with an estate planning attorney. And I've had people say to me before, we haven't done it because I have no idea who would take care of my kids if we were both dead. And yeah, and right. then they just, so then they just don't, like the problem doesn't go away if you don't address <laughs> right. it. But, but yeah, that's interesting. I'm assuming you can help people in that regard. But yeah, fear of not making the perfect decision. I think um, people are also really worried about the process and, oh, this is going to be really painful, really unpleasant. And I would say greater than 75% of the time we get to the end of my initial meeting with them and they say, wow, that was actually, and they never say it's fun, yeah. but that wasn't bad. Yeah. That, that didn't hurt. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're going for. And it's really, okay. I think there's two reasons people really, I don't want to say dread, but they put off doing their estate planning. And number one is they can't contemplate not being here. It's an existential problem. Yeah. How do I think about yeah me dying. Yeah. Uh, and that's really something that is going to happen to everyone. Right. And I joke with clients to come in, they say, if I pass away, and I have to say, respectfully, it's not an if, uh, <laughs> right, when right. you pass away. And you eventually get comfortable in that conversation. I have to ask really tough questions. What happens if your kids pass away before you? Oh God, what yeah. happens if you have a long period of dementia? Those are really heavy questions people don't want to deal with. But yeah. as soon as you give an answer, we come up with a plan. A lot of people actually feel this great sense of relief when they're walking out of my office. Yeah, I had a thought and then I lost it, Ben. What was I going to say? That was so brilliant. Tell me, talk to me a little bit about your process then. And are, is it what, like the first contact that someone makes with you? Is it a questionnaire? Is it an in-person meeting? Mm -hmm. Is it, it sounds to me like it's an in-person meeting and just talking through some. It can be. It. So usually what we like to do just to make sure that the meeting is very efficient is we'll send them an online questionnaire. Yeah. It's confidential, completely secure, and it takes about 10 minutes to fill out. We just need basics. What are your name, address, phone number? Yeah. And then we start asking 
Who do you want to make decisions if you pass away? Who would you trust to take care of your kids? Generally speaking, what types of assets do you have and approximately what are their values? Because we want to think about taking care of the client, taking care of their kids, and then making sure that we're tax efficient if we're able to do that. And so once that's come to us, we reach out and we ask to set up a meeting. The client gets to decide if they want to meet in person, over Zoom, or on the phone. And it really depends on the client. Some people, they want that distance. They want the phone. Some people like to come in and look you in the eye. And I think the in-person meetings are probably the most productive because there's a lot of communication that happens that's nonverbal. So once we meet with them, I have a generally, I'll have a recommendation at the end of that first meeting. And from there, I get them documents generally within about a week. And then I like to set the signing date at the first meeting. So I'll say, let's- Oh, absolutely. Otherwise it's never going to get signed. Exactly. Like a year will go by. Right. Yeah. You have to redo everything. And some people are really resistant. They're like, well, I don't know what my schedule is. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And then they're, I'm like, okay, I'll see you in two years. You'll be here. And by the time they're at the end of the month, we've gone over the documents. They're comfortable with it. And by the time we're signing, they're not even thinking. They're just joking. Well, what are you doing this weekend? Yeah. Um, So it's, I think that's the right balance of, speed, but not too fast. Yeah. You don't want to pressure someone into doing something. These are some pretty big decisions that they're making. Having said that, most of the time they can change their mind and redraft or amend or whatever. Most of the things that you're doing. That's absolutely right. And so I actually start the consultation by saying, I'm going to start with three things. This consultation is complimentary. You're not going to get surprised with the bill. So that automatically takes some fear off the table. Can I afford this? Yeah. Uh, Number two, everything you tell me is subject to change. If you change your mind today, tomorrow or next year, it's fine. We okay. can change it. Yep. And then I say, what is the main thing that made you come in here? What are you worried about? Okay. And then that will allow me to say, okay, this is the most important thing. Let's talk about the most important thing, which makes my job really interesting too, because no consultation is the same. Somebody might come in and say, well, I'm really worried about my adult child who has a learning disability. That That's is a totally a, different type of planning than, yeah. Exactly. And yeah. I wouldn't know that if I said, okay, so we're going to go through your list and here's my checklist. Yeah. So allowing the client to direct where we start, hugely important. What's the most common answer to that? They say, it's actually funny. I'm getting old and I think yeah. I need documents. Yeah. And then I... I Alyssa told me to come talk to you yep. or my financial advisor. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or another really huge one is I just lost my mom or dad and I saw how terrible yeah. it was to go through yeah. probate or I saw how bad my siblings are acting. I don't want that for my kids. Yeah. And that's another huge one that I see. One of my bullet points here under the psychology of money, Ben, is actually how your experiences shape your behavior. Mm-hmm. And that was one huge thing that came up when I was looking into the psychology of money. But you meant, here's, this is what I was going to say earlier. You were talking about people don't want to talk about dying or I forget how you worded it, that people are, they don't want to talk about it. They certainly don't want to talk about their kids passing away before them, but they also don't want to talk about themselves dying. And I think some people delay life insurance for the same reason, although that's a little bit, I think that's a little bit of an easier process, but people are, it it seems to me in my experience that until a certain, until you reach a certain age, people are like invincible, right? You're the most invincible when you're really young, like when you're a kid, right? Nothing's ever going to happen to you. And I feel like you even feel pretty invincible as you age into your 20s and 30s and 40s. But then there's, there, there, there's, there must be a tipping point, right? Where you feel like, okay, I'm not invincible anymore. And I don't know, I don't think I've hit that tipping point yet. <laughs> <laughs> me neither. Not quite, but I'm maybe close. But, but yeah, I think that's part of the reason that 
people might delay this is that it's hard to imagine XYZ actually happening to them. And other than the fear of something happening to my kids, people aren't as fearful of something happening to themselves. And I think that causes some of the delays in planning, but, but it is what it is. And I like your process of let's just talk about stuff and let's just make some decisions and everybody feels better, better after after having done the planning. And sometimes yeah. that plan doesn't necessarily work 100% of the time. So let's say somebody comes in and they have a complicated issue. We n- might not be able to solve that in one 60-minute chunk of time. There yeah. might be some homework that they need to do. We need other documents. We need you to do some soul searching and see what you want to do. Yeah. That's the ideal. Um, and sometimes complications are messy. People are messy. Yeah. And sometimes it takes a little bit more work to get to that finish line. Uh, but there's really no situation where I throw my hands up and say, oh, I can't help you. Yeah. There's always a way to make the transition or passing, however you want to put it, make it more comfortable and easier for your family. Yeah. Are there, oh, we just have a couple minutes and we'll take a break and move on. I want to talk about the differences between will, what we were talking about offline, will-based planning and trust-based planning and some of the misconceptions that people have regarding what is estate planning. We'll get in, we'll get into that after the break. Anything else on your process? What are the, is it common for people to, are you finding that people are implementing quickly or is it common for people to, I'm going to wait six months or a year. And then if they do that, are you just having to redraft it? It's probably just better to just get it done. Most of the time you have to walk a fine line because if you're overly intense and you're trying to get them in, like, Hey, we met on Tuesday, it's Thursday. Yeah. You don't want to scare somebody off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's our entire process is designed to make people feel better. Yeah. Uh, And so if we, provide a recommendation or we send documents for review and we don't hear from somebody for a couple of weeks, we might give them a call. We might yeah. send them a text message yeah. and say, Hey, did you have any questions? Do you want to talk? Yeah. And I would say in the greater than 75% of cases, people are happy with the documents. They're ready to sign on time. Sometimes they're unusual things that come up that we have to change the documents. Yeah. It's pretty rare for us to have a file that goes completely dormant and come back in a couple of years. Yeah. But it does happen. Yeah. Um, and yeah. we do our best to sometimes, avoid it. Sometimes life gets in the way. All right. We're just taking a quick break. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara Reed. I'm joined this morning by attorney Ben Cody with Styles Law in Marshfield. He's in estate planning. We're talking about all things legal planning today. We were talking about psychology, your money, and when planning makes an impact. That was actually the title of my show this morning that I forgot to announce earlier. We're just taking a quick break. We'll be right back. This is Mike McNamara. If you're looking for a financial advisor, start by asking him or her three questions. Number one, are you a certified financial planner practitioner? Number two, are you legally held to a fiduciary standard of care for your clients? And number three, do you only give financial advice and not sell investment products? These are all simple yes-no questions. If he or she doesn't answer yes quickly and starts talking, that's a no, and it's time to move on to another advisor. And we're back. Good morning. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed, joined this morning by attorney Ben Cody with Styles Law in Marshfield. You can find out more about his firm at styles-law.com. Ben is a veteran of the show, and gosh, we've probably known each other 10 years now. Has it been that long? Something like how that. How long have you been at Styles? Well, I've been at Styles nine. nine so. Okay, so probably nine years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, I, we've got several mutual clients, probably more than I can think of off the top of my head, and I get great feedback from people that work with you. One 
one of one of the things I hear most common is that you're just a nice guy and you're very patient. And I think that's not always the, with people in any line of work, but your line of work. But real quick, and we'll move on to, I, I do want to talk about, get into the weeds here of estate planning and will-based plans and trust-based planning, that types of stuff, but type of stuff. But we were talking off air about like the parallels. So we were talking about procrastinating and why people like, why don't they follow through on things? Why don't they know they should get a will? They know they might need to write a trust. They know they should start saving more in their retirement plans or draft a budget. And we were like, why don't people, why don't people do these things? And we were talking about the, the parallels you can draw. And I had mentioned, this was several years ago, but I did a show one time on the parallels between like responsible financial behavior and responsible like personal and nutritional behavior. Cause I was like, I can draw so many parallels here just in terms of like, why don't people eat better? Why don't they take better care of themselves? And there's so many parallels with what, why don't with their financial behavior. And we were saying like there, it's very hard to change your behavior and do something different. It's very hard to, if you've never stuck to a budget, it's very hard to put a budget together or an itemization of your expenses, it's, it can be very hard to stick to it because you're, you have to, we were talking about impulsivity earlier, like it's hard to not be impulsive. It's hard to not live in the moment. And we live in this society, immediate gratification and want, and everyone wants something now. And a lot of times everyone gets it now. And it's hard to change that behavior, but it can be so empowering to do that stuff. And in my personal life, when I've changed behaviors and stuck to a nutritional plan, it can be so empowering to get beyond it and get beyond the hard part and start living a little bit differently. And same with the world of responsible financial behavior and legal planning. It's like, there's so many parallels here. And you were talking about people are fearful and they don't want to do this, but once they do it, you didn't use the word empowering, but that's what I'm thinking. Like once you do this and accomplish this and change your behaviors and accomplish something, it can just be so empowering. And that feeling right there is just, it's unparalleled and it's amazing. Anyway, I could keep going, but we should get into some estate planning type stuff, but any comments on that? Yeah, so it, Estate planning is also one of those interesting topics where unlike having to go to the gym to get in shape, you can sign some documents and you're done. So it's, You don't have to lift a dumbbell. Exactly. It, <laughs> yeah. It's like you get to the top of the stairs like Rocky and you're putting your arms yeah. in the air. And you're breathing and, heavily though, maybe because well, you maybe. didn't go to the gym. <laughs> yeah, but the you can succeed with very minimal work, which okay. is unusual because with saving... You have to save for many years sure. or over time. You have to sacrifice spending and lifestyle to do potentially, yeah. And this, really, the decision is yes or no. Do okay. I want to do it or not? Which yeah. is, it's an interesting, yeah, I would say it's one of the easier of those topics to get through, Yeah. Uh, but it's still hard, which it's is just, interesting. That's interesting. It's decision-making. Some people are really good at decision-making and some people are terrible at decision-making. Some people have a hard time with decision-making because there's too many choices. And there's also, estate planning is the type of thing where there's, are there unlimited choices? I would say yes. And it's there yeah. aren't there all sorts of studies done regarding that there's a there's like a finite what's the what's the optimum number of choices for something? It's five, right? right. It's not the world of mutual funds and ETFs where there's fifteen thousand, right? That's not the optimum number of choices. The choices right. is the the optimum number. I wouldn't say it's five or six in the studies that I've read. And that's interesting you said that because with estate planning, it's like wh- who do you want to get the money? What if you have no kids? Who do you want to get the money when you pass? There's unlimited choices, and that can be over overwhelming for people. And I try and tailor the conversation when I meet with clients. I don't try to give them too many choices because it's tempting to say, do you want this type of trust? Do you want this trust? Do you want this? But really, if you narrow it down to say, well, 
do we want to use a trust because these are the benefits or do we want to use a will as the backbone of the plan yeah. and these are the benefits? Right, I'll give you two choices. I, exactly. Perfect. And and I'll have people will go through and they're like, oh, I really want this particular thing. I said, I know. I already knew that, yeah. but I didn't have to ask you. So right. the fewer technical questions and the fewer broad choices that they make, it's easier to get through it and come up with a plan that they're happy with. Yeah. Because uh, there's a lot of things that I can weed out as the person that's done a lot of estate planning saying, eh, this doesn't fit. Let's not even talk about yeah, it. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah. that's I can make choices regarding finances all day long. If, I, if, the do, if a doctor were to explain this is the situation and these are your like four or five choices, I'd be like, I have no idea. Can you just tell me what to do? And unfortunately, the doctor can't tell me what to do. I just want him or her to. Anyway, all right. Can you get into, let's talk about the difference between what the legal professionals call will-based planning and trust-based planning. And I guess I'll back up. And the reason I want to get into this is I think that I say the word, the term estate planning. I think people automatically assume I'm implying they need a trust. And you and I know that's not the case. And I should be more cognizant of my wording moving forward. I just, on my checklist of things to review, right? It says estate planning. I should probably just reword that, but legal planning. So can you explain the difference? Do you find that people have the same misconceptions or in, and can you explain the different choices they have? Yeah, I think that is a misconception. So people will come in and the first thing they'll tell me before we even sit down, I have a simple situation. I only need a will. And I say, okay, that's fine. So let's talk about what a will. Maybe mm-hmm. there are some other options that might work better. I would say the old school or the, the thing that was more common in the past was to have a will as the center of your estate plan. So we've all seen the movies where there's a will that it says, okay, this property goes to John and this property goes to Sue and then all the China goes to this person. And that was really common, but there are some negatives with that. The first issue is that you're guaranteeing that you're going to have to go through the probate court. So probate is simply the process of taking the will to the court with a petition saying, this person wants to be in charge of distributing the money. We call that a personal representative, used to be called an executor. And we want the court to say, this is your, this is the person that's in charge and distribute the money. The problem is, by definition, that takes at least 12 months, but usually closer to 18 months. And is that post-COVID or is that pre-COVID? That's a good question. Is it longer So it's the year is based on the time from the date that the person passed away. So by law, the estate has to stay open until the creditor claim period has ended. So creditors can file claims at the probate court. So suppose you had a Discover card and there's a $1,000 balance. That... (laughs) Discover can come in up to a year after you've passed away into the probate court, file a claim, and now that has to be paid if the estate has money. Okay. And you could wait until month 11 to start the process, but it necessarily means that you're going to have this open issue for at least a year. Okay, so that has nothing to do with the courts. That's because of the claims against the creditors. Okay. Correct. But the courts do, they are uh, backed up. So it's easy to pick on the courts because they are currently operating at a much slower pace than we would like but when if you go to court and you see the lines of people out the door and the army of clerks that are doing their best and all the judges are trying to do their best as well it's easy to forget that these are people and they're working just as hard as the rest of us yeah we don't necessarily get the, the timing that we would like and that's one of the other reasons that a will might not fit everyone but just like any other estate planning document or strategy it's just a tool so for Some people, a will is perfect. Maybe they don't have people that are relying on that money for immediate availability. Maybe they don't really care about the cost of administration, hiring an attorney or what have you. They don't 
necessarily, that isn't part of their goals. They're not really worried about what happens after they've passed away. They just want to make sure the money gets to the right place. Yeah, it's kind of not their problem after yeah. they pass away, but, right. <laughs> but and, it would be somebody else's problem. Right, yeah. so yeah. there's uh, probably multiple schools of thought, but yeah. the two I see the most are, I want to make this really easy for my kids. Yeah. I don't want them to go through the court system. I want to keep things high level and very easy. They can do it quickly. Money's available right away. And then the other school of thought is, I don't really care. I'm not going to be here. I just want to make sure that the money goes to the right place and makes people happy. Yeah, yeah. I There's, in my world, any, I just think it's important to note that just because you have a will-based plan, it doesn't necessarily mean all, asset, all assets will go through probate. So like on financial accounts, like retirement accounts, for example, any retirement account that has a beneficiary designation, that's an actual person and not an estate, which is most of the time. In those cases, assets can pass immediately to the intended beneficiaries. Same thing if you have a non-retirement account or what we call a non-qualified account. By nature, those don't have beneficiaries as an option, but you can add a layer of beneficiary. And I'd be interested to get your take on this, but um, <clears throat> some people that have non on retirement accounts, we can add a layer of beneficiary and make it what's called a transfer on death or a TOD account. And we call that a non-probated asset because when you have named beneficiaries on an investment account, you can avoid probate and the assets can go literally like within a day or two to the intended beneficiary. What's your take on TODs, by the way, just in general? Uh, uh, appropriate in some situations, but not all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're going to be your attorney answer. I, I, it exactly. depends. It depends. <laughs> but I love TOD accounts. I love beneficiary designations when the situation's right for them. Yeah. So if we have adult children, if there aren't any problems with handling money, we're not worried about divorcing spouses, we're not worried about those things, great, let's load up all the TODs, all the beneficiary designations, and we might be able to set up a plan where we have a small enough probate estate, which is exactly right, so probate versus non-probate assets. We might have a small enough probate estate where we don't even need to talk about trust planning. And the benefit of the client is that it costs less because it's less work to set up and there's no funding requirements, so they don't have to go to the bank, change bank accounts, things like that. It's just, it's simple yep. and it makes people happy. But unfortunately, if there's any real estate all, real I was estate at all. going to say, real estate. Yeah, that's, yep. that's where we see trusts being, that's the minimum thing that will trigger a trust conversation. So if somebody owns their home, that can't have a TO, that will go through probate if you don't have a trust. And so a lot of people say, well, that's not so bad. And then I remind them that to get appointed as the personal representative in a formal probate could take anywhere from six to 10 weeks, maybe. Yeah. And in that period, we're paying for estate or we're paying real estate taxes. We're paying for insurance. We're paying the mortgage. We're paying for upkeep, yeah. paying to heat the house. And in that period, that's a considerable amount of money and they want to be able to sell the house right away. Yeah, you can sell the house before the 12 month period yes. passes, but you can't distribute the estate before the 12 month passes. Correct. And passes. But six to 10, what did you just say? Six to 10 weeks to get appointed as personal representative? Correct. And then and, really that's when yeah. you can start selling things. Yeah. And then like you, you can't even probably list the home before then. And then how long does it take before closing? So are you really talking about four to five months maybe before a property would be closed on like at the short on the short side uh, right, yeah guess. so some people they cut the corner and say i'm going to list the property before oh, i'm appointed oh okay uh, and okay. then they say it's just subject to my appointment by the oh, court okay. Okay. Uh, i don't recommend that i think there's some liability there i think it's probably best to do it that right way i do want to be clear there are are probates that can be, you can be appointed faster. So an informal probate, okay. I tend not to like them because they have some other problems with them, but we can avoid this entire conversation with a proper trust. Yeah. And I have a, 
I have people come in and there's a common misconception. I've actually had people say, I don't need a trust, I'm not rich. And it misses the point. So I think we hear about trusts in the news and in pop culture with trust fund babies and yeah, people yeah. that are super wealthy, but there are people that are have modest means and a trust is still a really good option for them. And some people might be worth more than they think they're worth. Number one, just the potential equity that people have in real estate in this area of the world, not to mention in this real estate market, right? So equity in the home, even if there aren't any other traditional financial assets, but life insurance. People are like, when you do the numbers, you you could be worth, some people are worth more I was going to say, this is so crude, but worth more dead than alive. And people forget that, that your estate includes life insurance. So even a married couple, age 35, couple kids, right? Even if they haven't accumulated significant assets yet, between the two of them could have, what, a few million dollars in life insurance. And that can add up pretty quickly. So people I think are, might be worth more than they think they're worth. And trust me, are appropriate more often than people think. Yeah. And one, I'm sure you've had this experience and it's actually one of my favorite experiences. I'll have people that aren't referred by you or any other financial advisor and they'll take our questionnaire, they'll fill it out and they put in the fair market value of their home. They'll put in retirement accounts, they'll put in their savings accounts and I'll talk to them and say, okay, so you have a taxable estate and they're like, we don't have any money. We don't have a lot. And I'm like, I hate to break it to you, but you're a millionaire. Yeah. And they're like, what do you mean? (laughs) It's it's my favorite. Where Uh, is it? Yeah, exactly. But it's exactly right. Right. The yeah. value of the house um, yeah. is can be huge, especially if the mortgage is paid off. Yeah, and that can really push us into tax planning, which is a completely different topic. Yeah, but let's just jump right into it, though. You and I didn't realize this that Massachusetts. You had said off air that Massachusetts is one of the most expensive states to die in. Yeah, I didn't know that. I knew Florida and New Hampshire have no estate tax. But I guess I never looked very thoroughly. New York has a very high exemption, I think. It's $5 million and not quite as high as the federal exemption. But those are the only few states that I was familiar with. All right, so let's back up a second. When you pass away in Massachusetts, there is potentially an estate tax due at your death if you're worth more than a million dollars, right? If one person is worth more than a million dollars. That's right. And this is why we're talking about, and this is where trust planning, and you can elaborate a little bit, might come into play and where it might be more appropriate and more situations than people think just because trust planning can be implemented to mitigate, reduce, or eliminate estate taxes due at someone's death. And the estate taxes can get pretty big pretty quickly. I was trying to like look at some tables and correct me if I'm wrong, but like if someone dies and they're worth a million, a little over a million dollars, the estate tax wasn't huge. It was like $35,000. But if you're, you know, that there's still what, $965,000 left. But it's it can graduate a little bit quickly. I think a $2 million estate, the tax was like $100,000 and a $3 million estate, which I get, which to my earlier point is with life insurance, it's not that unheard of for even a young person to be worth a few million dollars. If they've got a million or not uncommon for higher income earners to have a couple million dollars in life insurance. A $3 million estate in Massachusetts was like almost $200,000 in estate taxes. And again, there's still $2.8 million left. So first world problem, but still someone writing a check to the IRS, the MDOR, and that example for a couple hundred thousand is really painful. And this is where some estate planning can be impactful. Do we want to go down 
the rabbit hole of marital trust and bypass trust, maybe just like at a high level, like sure. some of the things that can be done to mitigate estate taxes. Sure. And so I think the point you brought up is exactly right. And I think you remember that rate table pretty exactly. Yeah. So I'm sharp in the morning. I was yeah. up at 545 <laughs> checking those rate tables out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the estate tax in Massachusetts starts at a million dollars. And as soon as you get to a million and one dollars, there's a $38,000 tax that's due. Okay. So it starts at about 4% and yep. it goes all the way up to 16%. Yeah. Realistically, you're never going to get that high because that where most people aren't going to get that high because that's for estates that are over, I think it's $11 million is, uh, or 10, okay. somewhere okay. in that neighborhood. I never look at that part of the table because <laughs> the vast majority of my clients don't really- Are just regular people. Exactly. more regular net worth, like my clients, yep. yeah. With a married couple, there's an interesting wrinkle, which is, let's say there's a husband and wife and the husband passes away and they're worth over a million dollars. Even though there's more than a million dollars in the estate, there is no estate tax that's due at that time. So there's an unlimited right. exemption when the first spouse passes, which really gives a lot of people some solace or makes them feel better because they're like, okay, we don't have to come up with mm -hmm. money when the first spouse passes. But as a planner, I'm jumping up and down saying, oh, we just lost a great opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Because the fundamental thing that we're doing with tax planning is we're using that million dollar exemption for both spouses. Mm. So in the absence of a trust, so if we don't have a trust, we are essentially leaving that million dollar exemption Unused. Unused. Yeah. And it could mean not only that first million is taxed, but the amount over it is taxed as well. Mm -hmm. If we use that first exemption on that $1.5 million estate, because the second spouse's half million dollars that's in that separate trust is under a million, we have a zero dollar estate tax. Right. So up to two million, we're basically talking about, do you want to pay taxes or not? Which is kind of a powerful way to think about it. And one of the ways that I get people to say, okay, let's get this done. Yeah. So tr so translation. So one person in the state of Massachusetts has a $1 million exemption or essentially they're forgiven that first million dollars. I shouldn't say first. If they're worth less than a million dollars at their death, there's no estate taxes due. So one person has a $1 million exemption to the state of Massachusetts, but a married couple does not have a $2 million exemption unless proper planning has been done, which is where you come in. That's right. And there are, there's a lot of different ways you can describe it. Um, so we can call it um, a marital trust. We can talk about uh, something called a Q-tip trust. Mm, that's um, fancy. Yeah. yeah. ABC uh, trust. It's it, all the same. These yep, are all yep. the same. Uh, yeah. So people like to come up with different terms to make it easier to understand. So I'll have somebody, somebody come in and say, I want a revocable living trust. Uh, Do people come in and say that? Yeah. I'm impressed. Oh, yeah. But then I, I say, okay, let's They do probably it. came from me. And yeah, I told exactly. Them to <laughs> and I'll say, okay, great. We can do a revocable trust. And they said, no, revocable living trust. And I'm like, yeah, yeah it's the same thing. Uh, so it, it's, yeah. of course, it's confusing because we use a lot of different words to describe the same thing. But realistically, what we're doing is we're splitting the estate into multiple pieces so we can take advantage of the first exemption. And then as long as we're under that $2 million mark, there is no taxes. And even if we are, the taxes are considerably less. Yeah. yeah. Uh, by looking into it, trust and properly funding it, we can sometimes eliminate and very often minimize taxes. Yeah. And I think like the idea is that you're using whoever dies first and that's where planning can get difficult for you because you don't know who's going to pass away first. And you're working with a married couple. You don't know who's going to pass away first, which is why you guys, it seems like you recommend, let's just even things out because we don't know who's going to pass away first. But essentially you can use through proper legal planning, you can use up whoever passes first, you can use up that million dollar exemption and pass some assets like outside of the surviving spouse's estate 
and I guess, can I say like earmark it for the kids usually, right? It's earmarked for the next generation. It's out of the surviving spouse's estate, which which does limit accessibility to certain amounts of money, which is another component of the discussion. But it does, but it then when the second spouse dies, their estate is smaller because some is skirted or passed outside the estate. And so estate taxes due at that second person's death are lower. And accessibility is an important piece because yeah. as soon as I say, we're going to start dividing, we're going to make things outside the estate, people get really nervous and yeah. say, I've worked for this, Rightfully I need this so. money. Right. But the good part is we... It is accessible to the surviving spouse, but it's limited to use for health, education, maintenance, and support. So sometimes we come up with the fancy acronym HEMS. You might see that in some documentation, but the upshot is as long as the use of the money in that marital trust is for health, education, maintenance, and support, it's a permissible use and doesn't cause any problems. So generally it's more tax efficient to spend down the trust that's available to the second spouse, but it's not like that other money is lost forever. Okay, and Uh, support can be like pretty support's broad. a pretty broad especially if we be. have a separate trustee that can make that decision okay. a lot of people say okay so what's the downside and yeah. i kind of shrug and say there really isn't much of a downside from my perspective yeah if you want unfettered discretion to give gifts to grandchildren and take the money out and light it on fire in the parking lot of the bank maybe not the best option but if you're going to use it for things like paying for the mortgage paying for insurance premiums paying for your car a lot of that falls within that HEMS language. Yeah, I was going to say support could be like anything. Yeah. And I work with a lot of people that have done this type of planning and after the first spouse passes and a chunk of money goes into, um, it's the mar- it's the marital trust that's outside of the estate, right? Mm-hmm. Family trust that's more accessible, right? Yep. So the marital trust, yeah. And generally they, very common for them to take what a financial professional would call earnings from the trust, right? Maybe not touch the capital or try not to touch the capital unless a unique situation, again, that falls under health, education, maintenance, and support, but draw the earnings from the portfolio. So if it's like a million dollars and earnings are whatever they are, four or 5% per year, whatever it is, or dividends and interest and draw that and then preserve the capital. And that's a very common strategy. So it's not, like you said, it's not that it's totally inaccessible, but it's a little bit more limited. And there have been situations where I've worked with a client that's considering a strategy like this and they and some people do get nervous. Some people don't get nervous and that's the scary part. <laughs> oh, okay, that sounds good. Like, where do I right. sign? That's That scares me. But the people that get nervous and ask questions, I, but thank God for that. And I've actually had some people working with an attorney considering this strategy and kind of sit with me and be like, okay, if I do this and this money over here, it's not... Again, you pointed out that it's not that it's not accessible, but more limited. Some people just want the assurance or the reassurance they'll be okay financially. And I can think of a few, not to be sexist, but I can think of a few occasions where it was the female member of the couple that wanted to go through this step with me. Okay, let's pretend that my husband dies and this money goes over here and it's really not kind of not mine anymore and am I okay with what's left? And I think that's a really important process to go through and can help people be assured that hopefully that they would be okay and that the legal planning makes sense for multiple reasons, not just estate tax mitigation, because you don't want to sacrifice your lifestyle or anything in in your life to minimize taxes due when, you know, really when someone, if someone has an, again, first world problem, if someone has a $200,000 estate tax problem, congratulations. Exactly. Right? Let's not over plan. Let's, let's be realistic about that. Okay. We have to take a break. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed having a great show talking about estate planning and the importance of estate planning and legal planning this morning with attorney Ben Cody of Styles Law, styles-law.com to learn more about his practice. We are taking a quick break. We'll be right back.